So, we are starting tonight on number 358. My Master, this is Yogananda speaking. My Master, Sri Yukteswar, allowed me no superficiality when studying the scriptures. When we were studying the Yoga Sutras, the aphorisms of Patanjali, I would sometimes become a little impatient to move forward. He insisted, however, you haven't yet exhausted the full meaning of what we are studying. For six months, we studied only the first eight or nine aphorisms. When we'd plumbed to their depths, about twelve of them, he closed the book and said, Now you don't need to study any further. You have the key in your hand. The meaning of any scripture passage you read will be revealed to you. Its secrets will be unlocked for you by your clear intuition. Since then, every scripture I've read, no matter how abstruse, has been an open book to me. Isn't that interesting? I mean, your your master's understanding of scripture would be because he has the same state of consciousness as those who had the revelations who put them into words. But there's also an implication here that the guru transferred to him some kind of power and that the the way that we think that learning normally takes place, where you get more and more information, is completely shifted by what was obviously just a a transference from master to disciple. There was a man, he's passed away now, his name is Marcel Vogel, and he actually lived in this area. And he was just a a futurist, you might say, and an ancient wisdom sort of person. He was both sides, a very psychic man, completely outside the ordinary. And he actually had a job with IBM, and they just paid him to think. And But whatever he invented or came up with, they would own. And so that was the deal in his life. He was supported to do whatever he wanted to do, but all the patents would go to them. And he, he did a whole lot with crystals. Um, I think he, I mean, the kind of crystal stones and so on. I think there's something called the Vogel Cut of crystals, if I'm correct in that. I mean, that was just part of what he did. Um, He and Swamiji, they enjoyed each other's company. I'll just to finish this part of it. His wife was an extremely down-to-earth person who had very little interest or attunement with all the far-out stuff that Marcel did. And Marcel just thought she was just delightful in her complete common sense. And we were literally at Swami's house having lunch up at at the village where he came to visit. And Marcel came with his wife, and I forget her name now. And Marcel was going to show... Marcel said he could bend a spoon with the power of his mind. So we were all really keen on Marcel bending the spoon. And his wife kept saying, Marcel, what are they going to do with the bent spoon? You're just going to ruin the set. It'll be useless after you bend it. I believe he actually did bend it, although that part of it is unclear to me. But I remember most was his wife objecting. Come on, Marcel. <laughs> the end of all of this, though, the whole point of it, is that somewhere in some part of the world, they discovered, they, they dug up or found um, crystals carved into the shape of skulls, like the head. I mean. And Marcel said he had a vision of when those were made and what they were used for. And he, it went, he went back into some much higher age, maybe Atlantis before it became corrupt, I don't remember, some Satya Yuga age. And he had this vision of this temple of learning in which there was an old man 
and there was a young man and there was a priest and the old man's understanding of life was transferred into the crystal and then the knowledge that was in the crystal was then transferred into the young man and that's how education took place and I don't know if it was true or just his imagination but it just starts you thinking that our ideas of how we learn are so exceedingly limited and getting more so these days you know just um, I was hearing you know seven year old eight year old you're you're tested for your scholastic achievement and you're found wanting you have to have more study. I mean, Swamiji says that in the first uh, you know, six years, it's all about um, your body. The next six years until you're 12, it's all about your feelings and your emotions. 12 to 18 is all about your willpower and that your, you know, your actual intellectual side doesn't really come into its own until you're 18 or more years old. And yet, we keep thinking that if we want them to be bright when they're 30, they need to be academic when they're six, even though we're fond of saying there isn't a shred of research that upholds that theory. That the more that by pushing academics into younger children, you'll be smarter when you're older. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, that supports it. But it's just, yeah, it's just people's weird ideas about how learning takes place. I mean, so Swami, Master tells us this story about Sri Yukteswar just transferring the understanding into his mind. Because so, it wasn't, certainly in 12 aphorisms of Patanjali, that he could actually like learn all the principles of scripture, but he learned to attune himself. That's how he described it. And then, whenever he opens a scripture, the intuition is there. So moving on with this, Swami tells an interesting story. An interesting corroboration for that statement occurred in Sydney, Australia in 1997. I, Walter Kriyananda, was lecturing on Yogananda's interpretation of the Rubaiyat, the quatrains of Omar Khayyam, from Master's book, The Rubaiyat of of Omar Khayyam Explained. A member of the audience raised his hand, hand and challenged the Master's interpretation of one of the stanzas. According to him, it didn't correspond fully with Edwin Fitzgerald's translation into English. There happened to be a lady present from Iran. She too raised her hand, then informed us, I've read what Yogananda wrote about that quatrain. It's true, it doesn't correspond perfectly to Fitzgerald's version. It does correspond exactly, however, to the original Persian of Omar Khayyam, with which I am familiar. Yogananda didn't know Persian. He had, as he himself stated in the introduction to the book, attuned himself directly with the consciousness of Omar Khayyam. Swamiji said when he uh, edited that commentary of Master's on the, on the Rubaiyat, he said sometimes Master's interpretations seemed to him very far, um, far out from the obvious. But Swamiji said just the more he worked with it, the more he worked with Master's words, the more his attunement came to. And then he said suddenly it would be just obvious that that was the only possible interpretation. But it's, it's not like the Master's, um, you know, intellectual people explain every little nuance of it and fill you in with all the pieces of it. So just just we were saying at the beginning, so that you think, because you've, you've thought of every permutation on the possible interpretation of the words, 
that you've actually understood it. You know, biblical scholars, there, there's this whole convocation of biblical scholars in which they actually voted <laughs> on what the right interpretations were. And then those interpretations became, because the majority of people thought they were true. But that's really not how you understand these things. You understand it because you know the state of consciousness. That's when Swami wrote um, The Revelations of Christ, which when Swami wrote uh, this, uh, well, not this book, it's the Gita Commentary, when he, he wrote that book from what Master taught, he edited the Rubaiyat from Master's written version. But the Revelations of Christ, Swamiji just wrote a book completely based on what Master said, but he didn't really analyze Scripture line by line the way Master himself did on his version. Swami said that Master had never had him work on editing that book, so he didn't feel obligated to edit Master's version like he did with the Gita and the Rubat, but the, he felt he just needed to write something. But the whole premise of Revelations of Christ, the real entire premise of the book is who has the right to say what Jesus really meant? Because that's what we're all caught in these days is that there's such a, uh, in the West, there's such a strong, um, predetermined, emphatically declared uh, definition of what Jesus meant by everything he said, all supported by, you know, centuries of church authority and, and scholarly works and all of this. So it's very hard to, to step outside of that. So Swamiji just took it from a wholly other angle and just said the only people who really have the right to say what a master meant when he said or wrote something is those who share his state of consciousness. In other words, the saints can interpret scripture and everybody else is just guessing. They're, they're seeing it with their best guess from what they know, but by definition they're seeing it from a lower level and you literally can't imagine what the um, saint really intended unless you're looking at the world from his perspective. If thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Like, what would that mean if you didn't have either the actual experience of going into the spiritual eye and seeing it, or at least a scriptural tra tradition about the two eyes being closed and the third eye being open? When they were building the Temple of Light in Assisi, and they wanted to put a spiritual eye above the altar, um, they were actually looking, they made a much smaller one, their altar is much smaller, and they wanted to do it out of glass. And they were trying to find someone who could, who could make a blown, a blown glass piece for them. Arjuna was wandering around Rome, I think, and just followed his intuition down a certain street and ended up at a certain shop and talked to the man about it, showed him the design he wanted, said it was for their temple and so on. The man said, really? Is that what that is? He said, I've been seeing that all my life and I've never had any idea what it is. Can you imagine? He just, he just saw it. It wasn't a question. If you go to the Vatican and they have, I don't know what they call it, but in the center of the whole big sanctuary there, there's a very large platform, which is presumably where they say the mass from. And, and it has a huge arched thing above it. And when you look up, it's a spiritual eye. 
It's a gold ring. It's a deep blue field. And I believe they put a white dove. But what that makes with the wings, the head, and the tail, it makes a five-pointed star in the top of it. You just go there and you look up and you know, I mean, that somebody saw it. And they translated it into art. Somebody had the experience. It's really quite beautiful. And it's also quite exact. You know, look at that. How did they ever get that up there? Because these are not just... uh, mm, These are not somebody's ideas. But if thine eye be single, thy whole body is full of light. There's one translation that says something like, if your eyes are clear, um, and something or other will happen. I mean, just completely eating up the entire meaning of it. Because they're interpreting it according to what they think it must mean, according to the limit of their understanding. Then it's just, that's why he said, you know, they'll all disagree. But the saints will all agree, and then you'll find a completely different story. But it's so contrary because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. And so people just assume that meant Jesus in the body that he was in. And they, they didn't have the tradition of the avatars using the personal pronoun to refer to his own infinite consciousness. The entire interpretation of the Bible rests on the pronoun I. Just what was implied by the pronoun I. And when we identify with our egoic selves, we just assume that Jesus had an ego and was identifying with his body and was born and died. But when you read that Krishna said exactly the same thing and other great masters speak of I, but there's the ego is dissolved and they're speaking of the infinite, then everything in the Bible begins to make perfect sense and is in perfect harmony. How would you know that unless you'd had that experience? Unless you'd lived in that reality and knew that when Jesus would speak like that, he couldn't possibly be speaking about the body he inhabited. It's, it's positively ludicrous, except that a whole church system has been built upon it. Because it, it's also true that being infinite, he is the Savior, he does transform, he does take our karma, he does free us. Everything is true. It just depends on what he's talking about when he says, says those things. So... Masters, also t- just tuning into Omar Khayyam, when I was uh, working with the Patanjali uh, commentary that Swami wrote based on what he learned from Master, it, it was such an interesting confluence, confluence of three energies because you had Patanjali who wrote the aphorisms, you had Master who explained them to Swami, and then you had Swami putting them into his own language and even trans- retranslating Patanjali. So you sort of had all three energies coming together. Um, Swamiji himself, when he said, when he wrote Revelations of Christ, the more he worked on that book, he said, the more he became persuaded that Master was Jesus. He said just, that was among other reasons why he began to feel that was true, was he said just the more he worked with the teachings of Jesus and Master's interpretation of the Bible, he just felt like the reason Master interpreted it because he, he was it. He, he knew it. He was just reteaching it. And Swami also said he felt, he felt very strongly that the vibration of Jesus was the same as Master's vibration. And that was really what persuaded him because he, Swami knows Master as a vibration. And when he, as the more he got to know Jesus through all of that, it, it would be like 
recognizing someone. You recognize people in other ways than just seeing them. I remember once, this is just silly, but I was uh, with Swami and Seva and Swami and I were together and it was, we'd had dinner together. It was sort of late in the evening and he he and Seva were doing something and I was sitting a little behind them over here. They were engaged and so I was a little out of the picture. And for some reason, this uplifted, elevated mood came upon me, which was by no means my ordinary state of consciousness. And so I was just sitting back there just feeling particularly calm and blissful. And Swamiji just said to Seva, he was looking like this and I was over here. He said, where's Asha? (laughs) And I said, I'm here, sir. He said, why can't I feel you? I said, because my mind is unusually calm, sir. (laughs) And he said, ah, yes, there you are. (laughs) All without looking around. (laughs) So it's just, you know, operating on a different reality. We, We know what that is. Let me think about something. For me, I, I, having been in Israel twice in the last few months and three times now in my life, it was very interesting to me that p- perhaps I was biased, so I don't want to say that this was actually, you know, my superconscious intuition because I was certainly inclined to be there with Swami's statement that Jesus was master in a previous incarnation. But the more I felt involved in the last two trips I took. The first trip was very impersonal. Jesus was present, but in a very impersonal, sort of infinite, expansive spirit, which was wonderful. The second two times I went, um, it was very personal. It was really just the, the, the experiences of Jesus's life, the, my awareness of his, of his adventures. It was just, he, he, was, he was there for me uh, is, as a past life memory is bit, really the best way to say it. Not like, not like woo-woo past life memory, <laughs> but a, 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 a knowingness of it, familiarity. But it was like the more I, I sort of felt comfortable with Jesus, I realized that it was also bringing Master closer in my life, which was just very interesting. Because it wasn't like I tried to make that happen, but it just seemed like that was what was happening. My imagination or my superconsciousness, I'm really not going to claim one or the other. But nonetheless, it was interesting to me. I felt, more, I felt more comfortable on this whole path. And that was actually why the thought came to me that I wanted to, if it was possible, to facilitate a trip of, of, of master's devotees from India to go to Israel and experience the life of Christ, because all of the East-West has been the West going to the East, and I thought it would be worthwhile to try to bring them into it because even as close as I have always been in most of this incarnation since I came on the path to the life of Christ, going there really changed my relationship with Jesus and through him with the whole line of gurus. So it just seemed worth trying, which actually well, now we're going to do it. We, we needed to make the trip not too long because therefore not too expensive and also not too much time away from work for people. And I was very concerned about it until uh, Keshava was helping to organize it reminded me that Indians are not steeped in the story like we are. They're not going to say, but what about when Elizabeth and Mary met? It's just like, it's not going to be the first thought in their mind that we're missing, you know, we're missing that particular meeting. 
oh yeah, we can just leave it out. Nobody will know the difference. And then we made an excellent itinerary that will work, but it's short enough. It's just, it's a, we take, everybody's so prejudiced according to their own experience. And it, that's why, of course, travel and meeting people is so expansive because then we just realize how arbitrary our worldview is. I, I really laughed when Keisha said that to me. Asha, they're not going to know it's been left out. Oh, oh yeah, we can just do it. We can make an eight-day trip. It'll work. All right. So, a concert had been given under the stars at the SRF Lake Shrine by several prominent musicians. Master living in Los Angeles, there were a lot of artists all over the place, and he had many disciples among the artistic set there. The master was speaking comfortably afterward with a small group of his disciples. The crowd had left. Outsiders come and see only the surface, was his comment. They don't know what we have here and leave. But those who are our own see beneath the surface, they never leave. Isn't that a happy thought? You just love that thought, that you just come and you never leave. Where would I go, Lord? That's what I was talking about at Sunday service. Because you realize what you have, and there you are. But people do come and go. I mean, I laugh sometimes. People will come into this church and never come back because as far as they can tell, there's nothing happening here. (laughs) I mean, there's no electric guitar. There's no beat to the music. You know, there's no dancing in the aisles. It's just... there. I, I thought about that a lot. Dancing in the aisles is all right, but the beat and the guitar. But um, I've, I've thought about that when I've listened to I listened to Swami speak. You know, here in this temple and in other places, he he never the word he never he he never entices you with emotional rhetoric. You know, he, he it's not that he his talks were without feeling. They were, they were tremendous feeling, but it was always very calm feeling, very from the center of yourself feeling. And he, he just would never whip the energy up. And, and he, the way I think about it is he never gave you an emotional hook. He, he never allowed you to just kind of get a little wound up and then be able to grab onto something. He just would present things as they were, and, you, it, it would, and he never tried to persuade he, he was compelling because he was so committed. But it was his commitment that he was sharing. He wasn't trying to make us do anything. And as a consequence, you know, it was like a lot of people just didn't feel they got much from him. Not a lot of people, but many people. They liked him, but they, they couldn't see the vibration that he was speaking. And as a consequence, they didn't know what they had. And so they came and thought it was nice, and then they went away. Others just resonated so much with that reality. And it was sort of like even if you, um, if you tried to get that from him, he would with- withdraw even farther whenever people were trying to force him to, to be different than he was. There was another point that I wanted to make on that. Let me see if I can remember it. Never wanted a following. He never wanted you to you know, be attached to him. He actually talked about that quite a lot. I put a lot of this into the book I wrote recently. He, he he always felt that he anything that came to him, he wanted it to be sure it came from Master. He didn't want it to come from any willful action on his own. So that was also the reason why he would remain very centered in himself rather than 
putting out any energy to entice. You know, there's a, a wonderful story about Ramakrishna who for a period of time his skin began to glow. He began to glow with this golden light and it was beginning to a- attract a lot of attention with all this golden light. And there's this story how he just went out in you know, some isolated place and said, back inside, back inside, <laughs> go back inside. Because he just didn't want, he didn't want that to be the reason people came. And he was very, um, un, you know, just extraordinarily unaffected uh, in, in his behavior. I don't mean not affected, I mean unaffected, just completely natural. And there's a wonderful story of how the, the, that woman by, uh, Bar, by Ravi, the Bharavi, she was the woman sadhu. And she met him fairly early and she became completely convinced that he was an avatar. And she was a scholar and she convened a convocation of scholars. I mean, you love India. We, we love India. She convened a convocation of scholars and she was going to argue the case that he was in fact an avatar. And they were going to search scriptural references and they were all going to decide. So there was just like this little like hearing was held on whether or not he was an avatar because that was her commitment that he was. And so he sat there and he listened to them discuss it. <laughs> And uh, they were convinced by her that, in fact, he was. And afterwards, you know, with his disciples, he said, did you hear what happened? You know, they decided that, in fact, and he would just say it like, isn't this amusing? I mean, just so completely outside of any, it was something that happened and it concerned him and he thought it was interesting. And what do you think? Just like you, you can't even conceive unless you have stopped to really meditate on it, what that would feel like what the personalities would be like. Knowing Swamiji, I know a little bit of it, just how extremely casual he was about all of that. That wonderful story he tells all the time when he was talking to some woman and he finally asked what her name was and she told him. And then she didn't know who he was, so she asked what his name was. He said, Swami Kriyananda. And she says, but you're famous. (laughs) And he said, why do you say but? He said, well, every famous person I have ever met seems, and then she seemed embarrassed, but the word she wanted to say was important. (laughs) Every famous person seemed important. And obviously the rest of that sentence was, and you don't seem at all important. (laughs) So we loved that story. He would just tell it, he told it for years. And of course what what she meant was that they were self-important. That they, that they knew that they were famous and that they knew they had a famous name. And of course, you can't universally just throw everybody into the same basket, but yeah, sometimes people are like that. I When uh, Jamuna Jacqueline was running East-West, which she did for many years, and there were various celebrities around who would from time to time come in, well-known people, and she, she liked to be delicate. Some man, uh, he, was a, he was a well-known author, a New Age author. He came in and he signed a check. And she looked at it and she said, oh, that's a famous name. <laughs> Which gave him the chance to accept it or not. <laughs> My favorite, though, of celebrities coming into East West, we're just chatting here, was Christmas time when they, we had, we had a lot of singers who worked at East West during that time. And so they decided they would do Christmas caroling down on the floor. The, just all the different employees would get together and they would sing Christmas carols for the joy of the customers. 
and Arati was leading it once, and a woman came in and started singing with them, and she started singing a beautiful alto part. And Arati said, now listen to her, she's singing really well. And so, you know, you all join with her. So they did. Afterwards, she found out it was Joan Baez. <laughs> but Arati didn't recognize her. She just noticed that she sang really well and encouraged the others to do it. But it must be relaxing for people who are used to being fussed over also. Anyway, moving right along. So, number 360. Master referred briefly that same evening, however, to others who had left the ashram, in contrast to those who know who we are, never leave, to others who had left the ashram. Someday, he told me, those who have left here, Jan, David, etc., etc., will have their own groups. I mean, Master didn't even bother to enumerate how many there would be, etc., etc., will have their own groups. Swami makes no comment on this, listing it here. But in fact, he talked about that quite a lot as the years passed because, you know, th- this was uh, when he was with Master from 48 until 52. That's when all these, of course, encounters took place because Master died on March 7th, 1952. Then Swami stayed in SRF for another 10 years, and in 1962, he was expelled, much against his own will. He, 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 was, he, was, he was marching to a different drummer than the people who were in charge, but it never crossed his mind even to imagine that he would not serve master within SRF. That was just what you did. There was no other. You, you went to the ashram, you stayed in the ashram, you served as a monk, and that's what he was going to do. But instead, his gurubais decided that he was a menace rather than an asset, and they expelled him. And then Swamiji went into just, he just didn't know what he was supposed to do because his gurubais were the people he respected most in the world, and they ordered him, basically, to separate himself from SRF and to never speak in public again, never tell anyone that he was Master's disciple. They just told him to go into obscurity. Whereas Master had told him that he should have a really public life. So Swamiji was completely bewildered, moved back in with his parents, who happened to live in Atherton at that point, right near here. 36 years old, separated from everything he'd known. He'd been a monk since he was 22. And all his friends were in SRF, and he was now ordered to contact none of them. So as he said, he lay on his bed and prayed to die because he just didn't know what to do. In the path, he chronicles how he was gradually drawn back into public work and just every other door closed and so he realized that this is what he had to do and so he started looking for ways to serve that SRF wasn't doing. Communities was the most obvious. It was something that Master wanted that the leadership of SRF was not interested in and not doing which is householder communities, not just monasteries. So, step by step. And, but all through all of this, Swamiji was extremely, he felt very vulnerable inside to the accusation that he was not following Master's will, but somehow had gotten lost in his own desires, because that's what his gurubhais continually insisted was true. And so he was completely alone, yeah. In in a wonderful letter he wrote to someone, someone wrote to him and said, basically, would Master approve of what you're doing? And if he wouldn't, why are you doing it? 
And Swami wrote a very thoughtful letter in response, basically explaining, I would not recommend to anyone that they rely so completely on their own guidance without any input from anyone as I have been compelled to do, Swami wrote. He said, but I have no choice. He said, it's extremely dangerous to be as solitary as I am and have to determine all on my own, you know, what the Master's will is for me. He said, but no one will help me. So I just, I just have to do it this way. And so over the years, Swamiji was always trying to find and feel anything that Master might have said to him that would support where he found himself and support the fact of what he was doing. And this particular comment, which was very odd at the time, especially, you know, those who see beneath the surface, those who really belong to us, they come and they never leave. And then the same evening, Master speaks of those who have left, David and Jan, etc., 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 as if there's this whole host of people who've come and gone, all of whom will have their own work. And Master said it, Swami doesn't um, uh, emphasize the point, but Master said it as if that was just obvious what they would do, and of course they would, and the implication is that's fine. I mean, more than that, that's what's expected of them. So Swamiji saw in that and a few other things that Master said, more than, more than a few, that Master was dropping something into his consciousness now that only much later would be relevant. I've certainly found that with Swamiji that there's been a few things that he said, I don't have a bookload of them, but a few things that he said that, that stayed in my mind vividly and only much later did I realize that he was not, he was speaking, he was warning me or he was supporting me for things that hadn't happened, that didn't happen for decades even. And it was just, he would just drop it in. And then when it manifested later, I would say, oh yeah, I can see that. That's why it happened. And what was interesting to me is how several of those things stayed in my head. You know, they were casual remarks, but they, they stayed. They didn't go away because they were planted on a level like that. We just never know. We have to pay a lot of attention. I mean, we don't have Swami in the body. We don't have Master in the body. But things happen. And when something happens that has a significant energy to it, it isn't just a question of how we can understand it now. It's what its implications might be and when, when they would come to fruition. And sometimes it was suggestions that were not followed. When we first moved here, in 1987, I think it was in that summer, Swamiji showed up with a, 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 a study course on how to trade on the commodities market. And he recommended that we start doing that. And he said very casually, you're going to need so much money here, I don't know where else you'll get it. If we had listened to him, we would have, I mean, and then we could have done it. But it was just so out of the box. I just didn't know what to think about it. So it just, it just didn't have enough priority. But believe me, I've thought about it a lot since then. Especially during those decades, we could have made a fortune. And I believe we had the karma to do it. He, he didn't insist, and he only mentioned it once. But it was like, think about this, be practical. Interesting, isn't it? That's what I look, regret the most. But it's just, it was there, and it was also a warning, you know. 
you're going to need a lot of money, so you're going to have to always be thinking, just because of where we are. You know, you can, if we were somewhere in the middle of Iowa where land was $50 an acre or something, it's different, or wherever it might be, I don't know where you would be, somewhere up in eastern Washington. I don't know if there's a place on the planet that's still cheap, but it's certainly not the Silicon Valley. <laughs> All right. So, moving right along. Number 361. The master was at his desert retreat, attentively going over his Gita manuscript. I was seated on the floor facing him and thinking how wonderful it was to be his disciple. He continued to work, completely absorbed. When he'd finished working, he asked me to help him rise from his chair. When he was standing, he continued to hold my hands for an instant, gazed lovingly into my eyes, and said with shining eyes, just a bulge of the ocean. I knew he wanted me to understand that my love for him was for the ocean of spirit which flowed through him. Oh, wouldn't you have liked to have been there? <laughs> it's all that we were talking about before, you know. I said to Swamiji once, I said, Swamiji, if you do things a certain way, that's because that's the way Master did them, isn't it? He said, well, yes, of course. And I said, and if you don't do things, you know, if you refuse to do things in a certain way, that's because it's not in accordance with how Master did it. Isn't that right? He said, yes, of course. <laughs> you know, just like, how else would he make decisions? It, it's just that that becomes the reference point and everything is determined. And it's not just dogmatism. It's much different than Master said. You know, sometimes I, I feel uncomfortable when there's too much of the guru says we ought to. Because that's true, but when you're really doing it the way Master did it, it's because you've tuned into the flow of energy that was Master, not that you've memorized all his dictums and can quote them and say, I mean, although I'm always saying this is what Swami said, so I know, I understand why you do it, but the real thing is something else, something, well, it's, it's attunement, but it's, it's a sort of magnetic force that goes through your life that you're always leaning into it. Even in small things, you just lean into it because otherwise you just do things the way you want to do them. I mean, like, what is the point? It's just... And so, but in order to do that, you have to really feel that the master is a flow of energy because if you th just think it's a personality, you just think about what he did. You don't think about who he is now. Swamiji said, you know, people say Master liked to do this, Master loved mangoes, Master liked this kind of food. Swami said, Master loved everything. You, you just have to say Master loved all of creation and everything in God's universe. And the reason he loved mangoes or curry was because he was so full of joy and he just expressed it in that way. So it, it's also, you know, it's also God reminding to do specific things that that remind you of. When we used to drive from Ananda Village, my first 16 years from Ananda Village, we would come down to the Bay Area periodically. His, his family still lived, Swami's family was still living, his parents were living. And it was the closest big city and he would come down and do programs and come down and see his family. 
So a lot of times I, I took that ride from Ananda Village down to this area. And at that time, you know, starting in 1971, there was not a lot built up. And basically the only place that was at all pleasant to stop in, I don't even think it's, I think it's the nut tree is still there. But there used to be on the opposite side of the freeway, there was a place called the coffee tree. And it was a, you know, it was just a coffee shop really, but it was a a couple of steps up from Denny's and it was a pleasant environment and we just always stopped there. So I stopped there dozens of times with Swamiji. For years afterward, every time I'd drive up and down, I would just always stop at the coffee tree. But I began to take that trip with people who had never taken the trip with Swami. And gradually they were able to communicate in a way that I finally understood that it wasn't really that nice a place. (laughs) But it took me a really long time to cognize that there was a better choice. Even after, first there were no better choices, but then better choices developed. But I, I literally could not see them because this is the place we always stop with Swami. So the mind gets really um, caught. And, and gradually I realize it wasn't necessary. And then you also begin to realize it's just not necessary. You don't have to go and have this mediocre food and bad coffee here just because we went there because there was no other choice. But you do get oriented that way. Um, and it's, it's better than lots of other ways of getting oriented because if you're just arbitrarily doing something, you might as well do it the way um, Swami or Master did. Why not? Um, but, but what Swami is really wanting us to understand is that Master himself knew that it was what came through him. And that was the key. It's a very... Uh, complicated and subtle reality because the the window through which the light shines can also be very beautiful and it can really frame and focus the light for you and you can really understand the light by understanding the frame it comes through but if you only understand the frame you end up missing the point in a really fundamental way but if you reject the frame you can also miss the point So it's both ways. So Master intuitively knew what Swami was thinking and responded to it, but responded to it by celebrating what they both love. I often think of it seriously as, I I don't play a musical instrument, but if you play the piano and you have a very good teacher and you learn to be able to express the music very beautifully, it's the music that is the joy but you still have this tremendous gratitude toward your teacher. But the reason you have the gratitude toward the teacher is because of the music that now can come through you. And and it would be churlish not to be grateful to your teacher, but it also would make no sense to value your teacher over the music, because the music is the point. There was this man named Gary Goldschneider, who subsequently has become a prominent astrologer, I think, and has written lots of books. He had tremendous concentration so he could do whatever he set his mind to. When, when I knew him, he was a musician. And he was such a high-level pianist. He and Swami would have these conversations about music that were just way outside my reality. And um, once Gary was trying to say something to Swami that he couldn't quite put into words, 
So he, they were just in, his, in Swami's living room at the village. And so Gary just stood up and walked the few steps over to the grand piano that was there, the baby grand that was in his house, and, and just played what he wanted to say. And Gary had uh, a lot of, of beautiful music memorized. So he just sat down and played, I think it was something about Beethoven. So he just played it like this. And then he stood up and talked to Swami. And it was so amazing to me because it was like the music was always in the room. And, and Gary played so effortlessly and was so in tune with both his instrument and the composer that there was no, there was no person. All he did was open the window and then the music flowed in and then he closed the window and the music stopped. But you felt like the music was still there. It was just that Gary had shut the window. It was a unique experience to my, that for me. And afterwards, I said something to Gary about the music. And he smiled at me and he said, Oh, thank you for complimenting the music. He said, So many people compliment the musician. (laughs) And you could just see he had that same attitude. It's so tiresome. He said, The only reason that I matter, he was saying, is because I can open the door to the music. You wouldn't even notice me if I couldn't open the door to the music. And that's a very valid way to think about ourselves. Of course, he had done all the work and he had become so good. So that's what Master was trying to tell Swami. Open the door. Open, the, open your own inner door and then you'll, you'll be like me. You won't just admire me, you'll be like me. So, number 362. Life is, for most people, this one's so sad, a great disappointment. Before 40, everything seems rosy and full of promise. But after 40, most people's bodies begin to change. Engine troubles begin. The valves leak. The wiring system becomes frayed. The headlights grow dim as their vision fades. The radiator no longer works efficiently as their blood circulation weakens. People complain, I'm no longer the same person I was in my youth. How wonderful my body was then. Now it is becoming a burden to my spirit. They resent the change, but can do nothing about it. People ought to learn to view life from the beginning like long-distance runners. They should take better care of themselves in their youth, exercise properly, eat right, think good thoughts, and meditate daily. Old age won't be, then, won't be for them then a season of regret but of increasing joy in God. It's very sweet. Swami would often ask when someone came if they were, all, if they were 40, if they were over 40. <laughs> it was easier to change before you were 40. It wasn't impossible to change later, but it was easier to change. So when somebody with a lot of promise would come and he would, Swami would find out they were less than 40, he would be relieved. But, but what Master says there about you know, up to the age of 40, you can imagine that it's going to work out in a certain way. It's that, that's the most um, interesting part of this. I mean, the other part of it is about the physical body, which is also important. But, but you know, teenagers all have, especially if they're unrealistic people or dreamers, they all, everybody has an idea of how it's all going to work out. I'm going to have this money and that relationship, and I'm going to play in the NBA, and I'm going to be rich, and I'm not going to be like my parents. I remember 
I mean, I, I remember seeing many times, actually. It's often mothers and daughters more often than I see parents, uh, fathers and sons, but mothers and daughters. And often a woman over 40 is not so attractive anymore, especially if she has, has had a number of children and has let herself go. So you'll see an older woman over 40 who looks quite worn out. And then you'll see a daughter who's 19 or 18 or 17. And you will see the daughter is still, you know, has the youthful body and has made herself up really beautiful. But you'll see that they have exactly the same consciousness. And that's what struck me on more than one occasion that, you know, this is the young version, this is the old version, but there is no difference between them. And you just know that, that the young one, it's just a matter of time because all the same attitudes are in place. And it, I mean, it's not a curse, it's just an observation. All the same attitudes are in place. And there's absolutely nothing that's going to prevent this, this one turning out like this one, no matter how much they say otherwise. You know, just age, Swami said, is the phrase we used was the most trivial self-definition. But I at least feel that there's a lot of there's a lot of reality in it also, and it's not so much that we can remain eternally youthful looking because the body just has its story, and karma sometimes even if we've been very conscientious has its play. But we can always work with the mind, and just always work with being fresh and being interested and being flexible. Master used the phrase psychological antiques. And he said some psychological antiques are young. They just antique at a very young age. But many older people just become psychological antiques. And he says somewhere, eventually Master has no choice except to just let them die off because they're just not capable of, of doing anything anymore. I, I, was, I, I observed this in a married couple that I knew who were in their 80s. And I knew them when I was in my 30s. And the woman lived in the now. She, I mean, they both had a, a, a fine and interesting life together. But th- the woman lived in the now. She related to what people said to her. She was able to comprehend where they were coming from. She was able to respond to their reality and still keep her own integrity. The man would wait until something in the conversation allowed him to pull it into his experience. And then he would relate what he already knew. And he was charming and entertaining and intelligent. He wasn't a bore, and he didn't grab the conversation, but he had to wait until something matched what he already knew. Whereas she was always interested in what you were doing. It was, it was so dramatic that, I mean, that was 40 years ago, that I made a very strong resolution, which I have tried to follow as assiduously as I can, which is simply not to allow that to happen, but to, to just recognize that my interests are different, my vibration is different, my inclinations are different. But that doesn't mean I need to just withdraw farther and farther into the zone I'm occupying. I can be very interested. And I mean, I hear things like, in my day it was different, and you know, these young people are going to hell in a handbasket. You hear, you hear those phrases in your own mind, but you have to rigidly suppress them. <laughs> because otherwise, 
whose life are you living? What are you doing? You're just, we're just over 40 and we're repeating what we know. I mean, and it, it becomes a very conscious exercise. And when you begin to lose the capacity to do certain things that you used to be able to do, I'm at the point where I can pretty much do everything that I used to do, but I can't do it for as long. And the recovery time is more. I mean, even just, I use pinking shears for a couple, for an hour or so, or two hours up there, and boy, my little hand just, and I could, I used to be able to do that sort of stuff. So there's, there's just things you have to recognize. I have to get somebody to lift it for me. I can't open the jar. You can't be the same person. But you can be as wide awake and as interested and as flexible. Flexibility is the entire key. And it's harder to be flexible when you've been repeating your own patterns for a long time. So, and, and then, of course, Master just talks about health. and But it's really much more of the mind. And so you develop the habit early of just being here now and being interested in other realities than your own. And then old age becomes a very enjoyable period of time, as he says. You eat well, you exercise, you meditate, and you think good thoughts. And it all comes out much better. You know, Ananda people age nicely and die like heroes, so we're doing pretty well, but not everyone does. Well, let's take a little break. You know, even more important than all the other things I was saying about or as important as the other things we were saying about after 40, is this simple phrase, life is for most people a great disappointment. I mean, that is, that's really painful. But in fact, all of us who've lived any length of time begin to see how many things don't work out. And I, I, I very strongly remember after Ananda got so... Um, embroiled in litigation against us. You know, we, we spent 12 years in litigation and I was on the legal team and it wasn't by any means that we did nothing else during that time. In fact, we did a tremendous number of other things. But it was always in the background and it was very, it was a, it was a passage from the innocence of childhood to childlike innocence, which is a wholly different thing. Prior to that, just, I didn't believe in the existence of evil except in the most theoretical sense. But after going through such intense persecution is the only word where just this force is just twisting reality trying to knock you off the map. It's, it's a very interesting experience and it makes you grow up. You know, you just, you realize it's one thing to be happy because nothing bad has ever happened to you and it's quite another thing to be happy because something very bad has happened to you and, and you've made a conscious decision not to just cave in to the disappointment of what people can really be like and what life can really be like. And I remember at the end of that cycle of 12 years when it was just really all over and we had come out whole. You know, it, was, it, it didn't always go our way, but... We come out of it whole in our, in our spirit and in our community and in every way. We were, in fact, we were, we were grown up. Prior to that time, I was just a child and Swami took care of everything, basically. Even though I was 40 years old, I still was childish in my attitudes. When I came out of it, I was a grown up. But I wasn't a very happy grown up. I had been a happier child. And when it was all over... 
I basically just sat there and waited for effortless happiness to come to me again. And I wasn't gloomy. I'm not a gloomy soul, but there was a piece of me that was waiting for effortless happiness to return. The innocence of my childhood, I wanted it, I expected it back. It was more, it was just, I thought it would return. And I remember after about a year, just suddenly realizing that I was right on that cusp. I was more than 40, I must have been in my 50s by then. But I was right on that cusp where either from this point on, I would just keep waiting for it to get better, and it wouldn't, just as he describes here, or I would make a deliberate and conscious decision to remain, to become and remain joyful, enthusiastic, open, flexible, all the things I was talking about. And I I really remember waking up one morning saying, oh my gosh, it's never coming back effortlessly. It's a conscious choice from now on, which I began to make. It wasn't that I, of course, I was working on myself long before that, but there was a very subtle shift. And it was, it was late in my life, but it was sort later in my life. But it was sort of what Master's referring to here. Until 40, you just think it's going to come out your way. And then when you get to be 40 and you've been in the same job for 10 years, and I remember one man saying to me who, you know, had, a, had a, a obligations. He'd acquired obligations and he just sort of, remember him saying to me, I'm, I can see that I'm never going to get the fulfillment out of my career that I hoped that I would. You know, the reality of what my career is is quite different than what I expected, but I have to follow through. I have young children, I have a mortgage, I, you know, just like, here I am. I mean, that was the equivalent of where I was at that point. It's not going to be automatic. I mean, that's just, it's just, you know, it cannot be overemphasized how important that is. Because why are most people disappointed? Because they don't get what they want and they get sadder and sadder about it. And the fact of the matter is, almost nobody gets what they want. Or if they get what they want, it doesn't turn out to be what they want. It's just the nature of life. Nobody's torturing us and very disappointing things happen. But what do we do then? It's always a choice, but you have to practice it. This is where he said you need to meditate daily, you need to think good thoughts, you need to exercise and eat well. Those things really have a huge effect on, on the overall reality. We're, we're profoundly affected by our physical bodies, and maybe we have karma to have illness, but if we have a good mental diet, then we'll be able to weather it, and the body gets old and these things happen. You can't reverse a lifetime of habits in the last second, but you can certainly make a big impact on it. I have my theory about this, which is the soccer kick theory of life, which is I feel like you have a certain momentum. You're given a certain momentum. and it, You can call it youth. Mine lasted longer than the age of 40, where I feel like you're just... God sends you into life with a drop kick. He drops the soccer ball... And it gives it a big kick. And it just sails through the air. Then it bounces. Then it rolls. But at a certain point, it comes to a dead stop. (laughs) And there's just a moment when there is no more momentum of youth, if you want to call it that, or momentum of past karma. And you have to decide at that point whether to just hunker down at the spot that you've landed 
and call it quits, or whether you start moving that ball on your own. I, I say that because I, I it was a morning. I woke up and saw it. Oh, dear. You know, I'm just dead in the water here. <coughs> and nothing's going to carry me unless I carry myself. It's very sad. <laughs> but it's also terrific because then it's your choice. It's all those different things. What's interesting to me, this is just a speculation. In Autobiography of a Yogi, um, Sri Yukteswar says that in the astral world, most people make a body that is, is like their mid-twenties. And I thought about that. Like, I guess that's when the whole thing is perfect. You know, it's, it's completely grown up and hasn't begun to wear out. <laughs> and so you, you just got it all there at that moment. So that's what you recreate. And I know there's also a, a reference point. Like, as, as, I mean, I'm now, you know, 70, so it's a little different. But when I, you know, got in my late 50s, when I crossed into 60, 60 was a really big point. And I, I've joked about this before, but it was like in my late 50s and into my 60s, I changed hairdressers almost every time I got a haircut because there was something wrong. They just couldn't make it look right. (laughs) And gradually I realized, first I realized it was my face. And then one of the hairdressers finally said to me, this was her exact words, honey, everything gets old, including your hair. (laughs) Oh, it's not the bad haircut. It's just, it's not... The hair I had when I was six years old anymore. You know, everything gets old. And that was when I began to think, isn't that funny? And then you go to the astral and so you make yourself 20 again. So what I realized is there's something deeper than just fashion that makes you kind of identify with that youthful self. I just found it interesting because there was, you know, there was just something so wrong with the picture in the mirror. And I, it, was, it astonished me because I've been, I have a lot of vanity, but I've rarely had vanity about my looks. It's just not the way I was raised. I have a lot of vanity about my brain, but not about my face. But yet I really cared. Just amazed to me that I noticed and that I cared. Like, why? And I thought to myself, how many times have you gotten old? It's just like millions of times you've gotten old. Every single time, Do you look in the mirror and wish it weren't happening? I mean, really, that is super unproductive thinking. Like, how could it be so stupid? But there I was, actually thinking it. Now I just don't have mirrors. (laughs) I cover all my mirrors. It's much simpler. And now I just don't know. Every so often I notice. I look at a video to see if my haircut is okay. (laughs) But, nonetheless... Sri Yukteswar made an old body, but most people make young bodies. I have no, I can't say anything more about it, but I find it fascinating. This is something joyful about that youth. So be it. (laughs) It's all right. Now we were 363. Fools argue, the master used to say, but wise men discuss. How is discussion different from argument? When discussing... One approaches his subject constructively with a view to reaching a conclusion. When people argue, they settle all the more firmly in their beliefs and try to overwhelm others by fighting it out with them. 
Swamiji talked about a talk he gave once at some prominent American university. I don't know which one it was, but where very, very bright young people were. And he said it was an extremely interesting talk because they had many interesting questions. He said many more interesting questions than he often gets. And he had a lot of fun answering the questions and answering their next question and so on. But afterwards, he said he felt quite unsettled from it because he realized that they would all just go back to their rooms and make up more questions. That, that questioning itself and challenging and arguing in that sense, it, Swami never allowed it to be an argument, but intellectual debate was an end in itself. And that really wasn't he, what he was there for. He wasn't there to show how clever he was and how he could answer their arguments. He was there to inspire people to rise above that. You know, I, uh, I've joked with all of you before that I, I was 50 before I realized that debate was not conversation. My brother was, a, was the state champion of, de- of debate in the state of Texas where we lived. Texas is a big state. Two years in a row, he was the state champion. So our family was a little bit prone toward that. So I thought conversation was you muster all your best arguments and you present them. And then you fold your arms and you wait for the next person to do the same thing. I didn't consider it argument. I just thought that's what you did. You know, you, you naturally tell your whole story with as much force as you can. But conversation is different than that. And argue, I mean, debate is not exactly argument either because debate is almost a style of conversation which people who understand it do it. But um, arguing is a little more. Arguing is just trying to persuade. Debate is an intellectual exercise where you put your reasons against mine, but then you try to arbitrate and see see who has the best reasons. That's why you put out your best arguments, because you want them to answer them. And when they answer them, you say, yeah, that's right. That's the difference between argument and debate, is you're really trying to get to the answer. But it's not an attractive style, I learned very late in life. But argument is what a lot of people do. They just want to be heard. And they want to triumph. And they're not intellectually honest. I I, I have a very hard time with that kind of conversation. Because if people won't respond, debate at least, people have to respond. (laughs) They will respond to what you've said. In argument, they don't have to because they're not interested in actually finding the truthful conclusion. And of course, debate, if you're not, have that kind of mind, makes you just want to go home. You know, you just don't want to participate. That's what I finally figured out. People don't enjoy it. It's not fun for them. But when you're together really trying to find the answer to something, Swamiji was masterful. Because he was very thoughtful. He was always very thoughtful. And he had no compelling need he was not he was patient that's actually the word i want to use he was just patient because he knew there was no point in rushing people to a conclusion because if you rush them to a conclusion they would not be satisfied so he just would allow it to happen he would allow people to say what they needed to say most of the time unless they were just being argumentative or negative and then he wouldn't allow it but if if you were really thoughtfully considering it he would very thoughtfully consider it with you and he was, it was very helpful, a very helpful way to be. I remember um, one woman who used to live here said to me once, 
you know, in the conversation sometimes, she said, those people who think the fastest do all the talking. And those of us who need to gather our thoughts never get a chance because the people who are speaking fast are just taking the conversation. It was a very helpful thing to remember to get people to slow down and not always to jump in, but to leave a moment of silence for other people to think it through and not think that the only reason people don't agree with you is because they haven't understood you. <laughs> there, I, there was a period of time when Ananda's leadership was being criticized for not listening. And uh, I, I think it was Davy or Jyotish, but I'm not sure who said it. But somebody said, no, 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 it's not that we're not listening. It's that we've heard you and we don't agree, <laughs> which is really a completely different thing. And I've had people just explain something to me over and over again because the only way they can think that I don't agree is because I haven't understood. No, actually, I've understood perfectly. I just have a different point of view. You know, so the art of conversation is not um, so simple. You have to really pay attention. You have to pay attention to how much people really want to know. And if they don't, you can't just keep repeating yourself. Swami was very good at just letting it go. Sri Yukteswar has a marvelous phrase, which I I have used a lot and I love it. Well, perhaps you're right. (laughs) You actually have conceded nothing and you haven't lied and your integrity is perfectly intact because who knows, perhaps they are right. And you just say, well, I don't know. I, I would often encourage people when, like, people would come onto the spiritual path and then their friends or their relatives would start challenging them, you know, about their crazy beliefs or their cult that they've gotten involved in or whatever it might be. And then some poor soul who'd taken two meditation classes is trying to, ends up trying to explain the difference between sabakalpa, nirbakalpa, samadhi, or the essence of karma, or the secrets of reincarnation, or the nature of an avatar, and you're just so far beyond yourself. I mean, these are, these are things people would bring to me. You just get sucked down a rabbit hole and, and just couldn't ever get out of it. My suggestion was, when people start challenging, you say, well, that's a very interesting point. I'll keep it in mind. <laughs> Instead of trying to persuade them that you're absolutely certain, you just say, well, that's very interesting. I'll keep it in mind. Or, well, thank you for bringing that up. You know, I'll, I'm, I'm too new to have an answer for you, but we'll see. I mean, that, and why does it have to be settled? If, if, you, if you find yourself having to defend your point of view before you have the real confidence or the knowledge even to do that, you get yourself trapped in things you don't want. When you're finally really comfortable, you don't have to defend it. It's just like people can think whatever they like. Hmm, well, there you have it. Not my experience, but who knows? You know, you don't, that's, you don't want to be disloyal. When my father, after, I don't know why, I'd been in Ananda for 25 years, suddenly my parents got the, this bee in their bonnet that they would be against it. It just, it just was kind of a little wave that came and went. And My father, we were out to lunch, and he starts suddenly trying to persuade me that perhaps Ananda's not such a great place after all. This may have been during the litigation years, I don't remember. I just looked at him. First I said, you raised me to think for myself, I would think you would be proud of me. (laughs) Which sort of took him aback. But then I just said, don't force me to choose because I won't choose you. 
I said, just don't do this. I mean, I didn't have to persuade him. It was like, don't do this. And he didn't. He stopped. And they never did it again. But it was like I wasn't going to try to argue with him. It was pointless. It was just like, I know what I'm doing and I'm really not going to be persuaded. It wasn't exactly a conversation, but it wasn't an argument either. It was just, this is not an option. Let's not do this. So there's lots of ways other than argument. But the one I love the most is, well, perhaps you're right. Okay, I think that will cover us for this evening. So we went from 358 to 363. Thank you.